From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He helped mastermind the constitutional argument to keep Donald Trump off Colorado's primary ballot. We'll speak with retired federal judge J. Michael Ludig as the case gets another hearing, one that could lead to the highest court in the land. I believe that this Supreme Court will decide that the former president is disqualified from higher office by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, because that's what the Constitution of the United States says. Am I hearing bravado or am I just hearing certainty on the legal facts? I barely know what bravado means in in the legal context, uh, Ryan. Then, imagine taking a train between Metro Denver and the mountains. That may finally come to pass. Yesterday, on Colorado Gives Day, donors across the state came together to support thousands of Colorado nonprofits. Many of you earmarked your gift for Colorado Public Radio. From everyone here, thank you for participating in Colorado Gives Day. Your generosity strengthens CPR's ability to keep bringing you the news you can trust and music you love. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Our first guest testified before the January 6th committee, framing the attack on the Capitol as existential. Almost two years after that fateful day in January 2021, Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. That testimony was last year. And today, retired federal judge J. Michael Ludig, who lives part-time in Vail, continues to make that argument. Ludig helped craft the appeal before the Colorado Supreme Court, taking place this afternoon, that Trump shouldn't be allowed on the Republican presidential primary ballot here. And judge, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's a real pleasure. The initial lawsuit was filed by Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW. That's a liberal group that brought the case on behalf of six voters, a mix of Republicans and unaffiliateds. They argued that a section of the 14th Amendment bars those who've taken an oath to uphold the U.S. Constitution and later rebelled against the government from holding elected office again. And this is a legal approach you helped bring to light. Ryan, first, let me just say that that January 6th is not a political event. It constituted grave crimes against the United States of America on all of these legal issues that are going to move forward through the courts in the year ahead, including this one in Colorado. We're not talking about politics. So you, you mentioned crew. I, I, I don't know much about crew at all. I don't know that they're a liberal organization. My only point to you as we get started is that it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and it certainly doesn't matter to me. I don't do politics. Uh, I only do law. And I've evaluated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And that's exactly what Crew has done in its uh, briefs in the lower court and now in the Colorado Supreme Court. And tell me more about coming to this section, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. 
My good friend, the esteemed Harvard Law Professor Lawrence H. Tribe, and I uh, have tried to walk the country through these myriad of legal issues beginning on January 6, 2021, together. He's been studying Section 3 of the 14th Amendment his entire professional career. The bottom line is, is that Professor Tribe and I had been thinking and thinking deeply about Section 3 for the past two years. And that eventually led to the day when Professor Tribe and I wrote an article in the Atlantic. And from that moment on, Ryan, uh, it took off. And how do you respond to the argument that this section of the 14th Amendment stems from the Civil War and is not relevant today? I I imagine you faced that question uh, very quickly. Yes. There is no provision in the Constitution of the United States that's anachronistic or irrelevant. There are any number of people on both sides of the aisle who argue that this ultimately should not be decided in a courtroom, but at the ballot box. Let voters scrap Trump if they so choose. How do you respond? I understand the the argument, Ryan, um, but that's it's not either or. The Constitution of the United States is our charter of government. It is not an option not to apply any provision of the Constitution of the United States if it is applicable. And that's what the states are about doing today, just like in in Colorado. Let's get back specifically to the Colorado case and its appeal. In her decision last month, Denver District Court Judge Sarah Wallace said that although Trump engaged in an insurrection... This section of the Constitution doesn't appear to apply to candidates for president. Uh, Basically, the Constitution lists a lot of offices it does apply to, and president isn't one of them explicitly. So she concluded the drafters may have meant to leave it out. Uh, Your side argues she got it wrong here. How are you making that case? It's interesting the way that you phrased Judge Wallace's holding because she did appear to agonize over that latter holding that the office of the president is not an office under the United States and that the former president therefore had not taken an oath to support the Constitution as an officer of the United States. So then to the argument that that I believe is correct, the Constitution itself refers to the office of the president as many as nine or 10 times. There simply is not an argument that the president does not occupy an office under the United States or that he is not an officer of the United States. Uh, Judge Wallace, you know, wrestled and grappled with that, but nonetheless came to the conclusion that it doesn't, that Section 3 doesn't include the office of the president because it was not explicitly and expressly listed as an office 
from which one could be disqualified. And, and let me just say, for, for his part, former President Trump's side has argued that he did not engage in insurrection and has questioned whether a state court judge rather than Congress should settle this issue. And his attorneys make the case that the clause doesn't apply to him for like a slightly different reason, that it covers officials who swear to support the Constitution. And the president actually promises to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution when taking the oath of office just to inject a little bit more legal and constitutional nuance. That's not what we call constitutional nuance, Ryan. Uh, that's what we call a, a frivolous argument. You think that's well, a distinction without a difference? No, I think it's worse than that, Ryan. That's not my point at all. That's a frivolous argument. There's no court in the land who would ever accept that argument. But but, but let me return. Yeah, what do you think a better ruling would look like? Well, having studied this now for years... I really believe, uh, Ryan, that literally the only argument that is persuasive and therefore that should prevail, and I can't state it any simpler than it is stated in the Constitution itself, which is that the presidency is an office under the United States, one, two, the president is an officer of the United States, and three, the presidential oath is an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, which is referenced in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, now, that's not to address at all yet the insurrection. Is it important that the judge in the Colorado case on the first go-round found it to be insurrection? It is a, a momentous significance, Ryan, momentous significance. I can't imagine that the Supreme Court of Colorado would ever reverse uh, that decision by Judge Wallace. Hmm. By the same token, I don't have any doubt um, that the Supreme Court of Colorado uh, will see the error Judge Wallace made in her other holding that the 14th Amendment doesn't even apply to the former president. Incidentally, Ryan, there were two decisions that came out of, of enormous significance, uh, not just for the former president's uh, criminal trials that are going to be held this coming year, but also for this uh, 14th Amendment question. In the first decision, the D.C. Circuit held that the former president is not entitled to immunity, civil immunity from suit for his conduct up to and including January 6. And then two hours later, the federal district court in the District of Columbia uh, held that the former president is not entitled to immunity from criminal prosecution for the former president's conduct up to and including January 6. So the the significance of those twin holdings is that the president will now be prosecuted and that hearing, that criminal trial will begin in March, just uh, two or three months from now. Meanwhile, 
uh, you've got these other 14th Amendment cases uh, like Minnesota and Michigan, both rejected on different grounds by the courts. Care to comment on the lack of success of this argument elsewhere? Yes. In fact, I'm glad you you asked that question. Uh, It's not lack of success at all, Ryan. This is the normal judicial process in the state and federal courts in which various courts that are deciding the same question decide different parts of the case. So these other courts, for instance, they did not decide the federal constitutional question at all. Rather, they decided only the issues under state law as to whether the plaintiffs, if successful, could bar the former president from being on the the state ballots in the primaries in those states. So they did not address this question at all. The Colorado court district court addressed the 14th Amendment question Hmm. and both the the significant question of insurrection, as well as the applicability of Section 3 to the former president. That's the first court in the land who's done so. And therefore, the Colorado Supreme Court case could well be the first case to go to the United States Supreme Court. Ah, I'm glad you invoked the highest court in the land. And, you know, it's nine members where conservatives are in the majority. Three of the justices nominated by the former president. I don't want to paint judges as purely political animals by any means, but does this all become moot at the U.S. Supreme Court? No, that's not my view at all, Ryan. I... I understand and appreciate the view you just expressed, but the nine members of our Supreme Court, they are are, are charged and bound by oath to decide questions under the Constitution of the United States without regard to any other variable, uh, including politics writ large or their own political uh, viewpoints or biases. You have faith. You have faith in this court as objective. I have faith in the institution of the Supreme Court of the United States. I have have always had a, a reverence. Uh, you've made a distinction there with a difference that you respect the institution. But I'm asking you pretty specifically about these nine justices. I understand, and and, and I'll answer that specific question, Ryan. I believe that this Supreme Court will decide that the former president is disqualified from higher office by the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, because that's what the Constitution of the United States says. Am I hearing bravado or am I just hearing certainty on the legal facts? I just I just want to make sure to parse that out. Yeah, I, I, I barely know what bravado means in, in the legal context, okay. uh, uh, Ryan. Okay. <laughs> I understand your question. No, it's not bravado at all. <laughs> it, the, the only thing I do, the only thing I've ever done in my whole life is analyze the law and come to a conclusion as to what the law you know, says and means. That's all I'm doing here. 
I just want to note as well, um, for those maybe trying to parse the politics here, that you were appointed to the bench, I believe, by George H.W. Bush. That's correct. Uh, In 1991, I think, right? Yeah. I guess that you'd be nominated and then the Senate would confirm you not appointed. But um, do you think that Mr. Trump, I, I do want to ask you a political question. Do you think that Mr. Trump is his own distinct um, entity, trend, animal, force, movement? Or is this indicative of deeper trends in society? Well, I believe the former president is unique in all, all of history. And, and I'm confident that he will always be. Um, that's not to say, though, that his movement will not continue for decades to come because of the obvious reason that essentially all of the Republicans uh, have supported and defended the president in the past three years up to and including this day. And they, they seem uh, prepared to nominate him him as their standard bearer, notwithstanding, if not despite the facts that he uh, tried to overturn the 2020 presidential election in flagrant violation of the Constitution of the United States, that he has been criminally charged by the United States for his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. He will be tried in in a court of law uh, beginning in March for that offense. In addition, the former president will be tried this coming year uh, for his retention of the uh, classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. And he'll be tried in other jurisdictions for other uh, state offenses that your listeners know about. So this will be a spectacle unlike anything that we've ever witnessed in American history, a spectacle that the former president himself decided that he wanted to thrust upon the nation. It bears repeating, even at this late date, that the former president is the first president ever in our history since uh, our founding almost 250 years ago, who has even been criminally charged let alone tried to conviction or acquittal. It's fascinating Uh, how many of his supporters point to that novelty, to that first, and say that's about the corrupt judicial system, not about Mr. Trump. But I, I think what I hear you saying is that is extraordinary. And it's not extraordinary because there's been some huge sea change in the judiciary and in law enforcement and criminal justice, but that this is indeed a new animal. No, this is a new animal and, frankly, Ryan, a new Republican Party. In the days leading up to January 6th, Trump supporters, including John Eastman, the attorney who at the time was a visiting scholar at the University of Colorado, argued that Trump's vice president, Mike Pence, should halt the certification of the Electoral College count and prevent Joe Biden from taking office. And Pence declined to do so. But I'm wondering about the idea of like verdict shopping, looking for a narrow, even non-existent legal window where possible to achieve desired results. If there were someone who saw 
what you are up to and thought, well, that that seems familiar. Going to lots of different courts and sort of shopping an idea around. How would you make a distinction for them? Well, of course, as you, as you know, the, the world knows now that Professor Eastman was a, a law clerk of mine some 25 years ago, but also that I got the call on the night of January 4th from the vice president's counsel and dear friend of mine, Richard Cullen. And, and during that evening call, which, by the way, took place in, in Colorado <laughs> because my wife and I were there in Vail. Richard said, what do you think of John Eastman? And I said, well, I, he's a former clerk. I, he's a brilliant constitutional scholar. And uh, why are you asking? And Richard said, you don't know, do you? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, uh, Professor uh, uh, Eastman was in the Oval Office uh, this afternoon telling the, the president of the United States and the vice president of the United States that the vice president could uh, overturn the election two days thence on January 6th. And so my first initial response to uh, Richard was, you could tell the vice president that he has no such authority under the Constitution uh, at all. And Richard said, he knows that. Uh, I guess he had told, Richard had told the vice president that. And I said, well, Richard, I I don't know what I can do, but I'll I'll be glad to help in any way possible if you if you or the vice president can think of a way that I can help. So you you are plainly saying there is a constitutional underpinning foundation for the latter and absolutely none for the former. Yes, I am saying that as to the former president's effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and the advice that my uh, former clerk, John Eastman, gave the then president of the United States. Hmm. It was not even arguable, uh, Ryan. I think for purposes of my congressional testimony, uh, I said that perhaps these were arguments that would be appropriate for a constitutional law class, but they were singularly inappropriate as counsel to a president of the United States of America who was about to try to overturn a presidential election that he had lost fair and square. Judge, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's a real pleasure to be speaking to the citizens of of Colorado. Retired federal judge J. Michael Ludig, who lives part-time in Vail, he helped craft a legal argument relying on the 14th Amendment to keep President Trump from becoming president again. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with why passenger rail between the mountains and the metro might actually be on track. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. School board meetings and elections are often sleepy affairs, but not anymore in some Colorado school districts where political and religious influences on school boards have amplified. Almost all of our efforts have been, how can we flip a school board? I'm CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine, and I've examined how this development has affected school boards and districts and how some parents are responding. Follow this and all of CPR's education reporting at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A train between Metro Denver and the mountains may finally come to pass. 
Shoshana Liu heads the state transportation department. She says rail service between Denver and Steamboat Springs could start in less than a decade. Liu spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. First, give us a quick picture of what you envision this project to be. This project is a unique confluence of economic, environmental, and sort of just transition opportunity coming together. What you would have is a train from the Denver area, probably through Arvada, to Winter Park, where the ski train goes now, and then extending through Steamboat, Craig, and Hayden, which means that as northwest Colorado grows, it would do so in a way where it could be anchored by public transit rather than driving being the only way to get there. And it would also help places like Craig and Hayden sort of achieve a more modern economy where they're very focused right now on what to do when the coal plants close. So for years, we've reported on CPR News study after study touting the feasibility of passenger rail in Colorado along I-70 in the mountains, front range commuter rail between Pueblo and Fort Collins. But as of yet, none of this has ever come to fruition. What makes this project right now uh, different? What's unique about this is that it would take advantage of existing right-of-way. So the tracks exist. The tracks exist. Got it. And, you know, building tracks is, in most projects, the most cumbersome barrier between idea and reality. And if you don't have to build tracks, it means that the infrastructure costs go down. The right-of-way negotiations have many fewer parties involved. In this case, it's owned uh, by the Union Pacific. Um, And, you know, in our cases, the mountains have already uh, been navigated, Right. In most places in Colorado's mountains to you know, break through a new route has some very uh, obvious physical hurdles, which is the same reason we're going there. You have to blast there. through mountains and things like that. Yes. But, but that's not the case here. No, because yeah. the tracks already exist. Yeah. And in terms of the cost of this, since so much has been done, you know, are we talking billions of dollars, millions of dollars? We have just initiated a study to try and get the cost estimate to the point where we can really talk about funding and scoping the project. But, you know, our initial estimates are that this is in the hundreds of millions. Do we know how long a trip would take in theory between Denver and Seamode Springs? It depends which parts of the route you're doing. You know, the current train that we have right now to Winter Park is about 90 minutes from Arvada uh, to Winter Park. And we assume that most Folks who are going to park are probably going to park in Arvada just because Union Station's lovely, but not as easy to park (laughs) and walk your skis. You know, historically, there was a train to Steamboat that took about six hours. Um, You know, that was a train that was sort of rooted in the mid-century. You know, the technology's gotten a lot better since then. You know, the uh, studies that we will do will sort of identify where the tight curves are and what you can do to smooth traffic. So, you know, you're you're in the ballpark of what um, a drive with traffic would be anyway, and it's a lot more pleasant to sit and you know re- read a book or check your email or look at the beautiful mountains than to try and navigate Berthoud Pass in the snow. There's already bus service to those places. Uh, why not just keep that? I mean, because you're still looking out a pretty window, you're still sitting down. What's the difference between bus service and, and using a train? We think it's a yes plus. Uh, we are very proud of the bus service that gets to Steamboat Springs. It's a wonderful partnership with the resort, and you know it's something that we're eager to keep going. What's different about a train route, particularly where you have the tracks so that you can start the planning, right? There's not a lot of questions about where the route's going to be. It means that you can help to really anchor growth around those train routes. And the, for the communities, you know, whether it's Steamboat itself or Craig and Hayden, you know, or even the areas surrounding Winter Park, um, being able to envision where those stops along the rail will be can be really, you know, a part of how the communities grow. Can Colorado really see an entire new rail system set up and running in just a few years? 
I think it's within the realm of the possible. This story started for CDOT really in the summer when, you know, a very interesting group of people came to us and asked us to take this seriously. That included, uh, you know, the ski resorts. And, you know, they they brought us to Steamboat and we sat down with you know, a large coalition of local government officials, you know, who seemed to really to be speaking with one voice about the need and the possibility to get this done. We heard a similar thing from the freight you know, company who owns the rail line. You know, we we always kick the tires on things and we couldn't think of a reason why this isn't possible and feasible. And, you know, that's part of what makes this different from other alignments that have been studied is that the pieces are, are mostly there. And you're talking about big but incremental changes that you have to make to make it happen. And none of those seem like they should take decades. So not decades. So I, I don't think so. You don't think so. Are, are there concrete things you're doing right now that people can point to and say, oh, yeah, this is actually something that is going to be happening? We just in the last week or so uh, put out a request for information uh, to start to learn about what rolling stock can roll through our mountains. And the train cars, the train locomotives, cars, the things tra- like that. Yes, train cars and locomotives. So this request for information, the goal of that is to get companies who make trains uh, to come tell us what trains they have and what it would take to actually buy trains. and. Our sense, given what's going on in Europe and elsewhere in the world, is that there are trains that can run through mountains at altitude with curves. So we think these products exist. And so you are asking companies to say, hey, show us what you got. What are we talking about here? Are these going to be like Amtrak style trains where you can go to a cafe car or a lounge car or things like that? I think the idea would be commuter train cars that are contemporary, hopefully clean, you know, the, the market is getting closer and closer to zero emission train cars being prevalent. You know, that's part of what we want to learn about, too. It's kind of stunning to me how quickly this went from being an idea where we saw unique confluence of people all excited about it to something where we're talking about how to get the operations planning underway. Get the train cars. Get the, tra- get the train rolling. Yeah. The final question here, is there ridership for this? Our experience with adding appealing uh, transit options to the mountains is that when you build it, people come fast. You know, whether that's the Winter Park ski train, where I think they have like 33 runs and get almost 17,000 people, but they sell out. So, you know, I'll I'll bet you if they doubled the available options, people would take them. And we've had similar experiences on our Bustang routes. You know, the I-70 Bustang route is, you know, well over 120% of pre-COVID ridership. Like that doesn't happen right now. Yeah. You know, the Pegasus service that we set up uh, in its first year, you know, was uh, you know, at much higher levels of uptake than most buses are. So, and those, those vans that those would vans. take people, yeah. I, you know, so we've seen that every time we add an attractive mountain service, even if it takes a little longer than driving, you know, people find those drives so exhausting that they take them. And, you know, it's, uh, it's not a bad place to be able to look out the window. Director Lou, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate you talking to me. Thanks for having me. CDOT Executive Director Shoshana Liu speaking with Nathan Heffel about the promise of passenger rail service between Denver and the high country. Back shortly with a story that will numb you in a good way. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's a particularly American phenomenon, hillside letters and mountain monograms that hover high over towns and campuses across the West. The big M over Golden was one of the first, a carefully tended pile of white rocks proposed by a Colorado School of Mines senior thesis in 1908. There's a D in Del Norte, a P above Paonia. In fact, more than 20 letters like these dot the state. But during the Depression, folks in Palmer Lake thought up a different approach, to make a star out of light on a steep mountainside to the west. 
For three months in 1935, locals hauled posts up the mountain, then strung wiring between 91 bulbs to light their star in time for the holidays. It's been shining every December since, visible to anyone passing by on I-25 and guiding travelers on Colorado Highway 105 to the little town of Palmer Lake. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With the support of National Jewish Health. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If cocktails are part of your holidays, we have a story for you about a Colorado spirit that's family-owned and involves the rainforest? Yep. And CPR's Dan Boyce is going to share it with us. Hey, Dan. Hello, Ryan. This liqueur is called Tingala. And coincidentally, you and I tried it earlier this year, but on like totally separate occasions. Yeah, it it totally was a coincidence that we did. And seemingly, Ryan, you and I had very different experiences with it. I think that's true. Well, uh, how about you give us your first take? A friend and I went to this bar in downtown Colorado Springs, and the bartender was just evangelizing this new liqueur. He's going, hey, you guys got to try this. You've never had anything like it. I'll pour you a free shot. And he pulls out this tall, skinny bottle of Tingala. And what stands out to me about it is the wasp on the bottle. Yes, it's a threatening logo. Uh-huh. Uh, right. And so my friend and I were like, hey, well, we're not going to say no to, to free shots. And I think the experience of it is just hilarious. So it, at first, it's sort of this sweet, spicy cinnamon taste. But seemingly in seconds, it's like you've been to the dentist and had your mouth shot full of Novocaine. I remember the numbness well. I'd gone to a cocktail bar in my neighborhood, Bar Max, Colfax, where I've tried all sorts of new things. Pawpaw liqueur, crab liqueur. Yes, crab. And this Tingala stuff. And, you know, I'm glad I had the experience, but I, I wasn't eager to rush back to the numbing sensation. Yeah, I remember your social media post to that effect. Uh, To some degree, the divisiveness is sort of the point. They're trying to stand out. Here's Eric Tews. He's one of the owners of the company. I think it is a little bit polarizing, but I mean, there's a unique person who connects with Tangala. We know they're out there. We know there's a lot of them. And really, it won't be for everybody. But we do believe that, you know, there are cocktails that almost everyone would be comfortable having Tangala in. Eric started the company with his mom, Susan, and dad, Bob. Not everybody likes scotch. Some people love it, some people hate it. Same thing with gin. Some people love it, some people hate it. So we think there's a market at some level for something that we produce that we think gives a very different and unique mouthfeel. Or mouth unfeel, as it were. Uh, So Dan, you visited the distillery where the twos make this numbing liqueur tingala. I did on bottling day. For years, the three of them, the the Tooses, did all the bottling and packaging themselves. And they still don't have their own facility. They rent space at local distilling in Golden. However, the brand has been slowly growing and they've reached enough critical mass that they now have local distilling workers helping out with the bottling like Sebastian Gerard. Uh, we fill it up. When they're done, we level them off. And then we take it over to our capper over here. <clears throat> we press our corks into the bottles. We make sure that we don't have any uh, residue on the sides, clean them up. Then we're taking them to our cigar band station over here. The key ingredient, the 
Tingler in Tingala is something Bob Tews learned about from a TV show. It was in a Bourdain episode in the Amazon basin, and he talked about the flower, and I was like, I've never heard of this flower. He's talking about Anthony Bourdain, the now-deceased chef and traveling food journalist. Bourdain raved about it and said it was a very unique experience. Uh, As part of alcohol, or...? No, it was actually in a, it's in a soup that's, it's called takaka. It's a shrimp and uh, yucca soup that is part of the Amazon basin in Manaus and some of the other cities. He tried it and he was like, oh, my mouth is tingling. And I was like, I've never heard of this flower. I have no idea what this is. So I started to research Amazon flowers and, and found a little bit about what the flower was, where it came from, the history of it, started to grow it. We sampled with some things, and then Eric uh, and I sort of like dialed in the recipe for what we thought would be a product that could maybe have uh, some appeal to the palate of people who drink. How long did you work on that first recipe? Oh, a long time. Um, My dad was the first one to kind of put the the flowers into alcohol and really got kind of the concept idea. Like the first one that you know of, like in the... World? As far as we knew at the time. Um, But then to kind of refine that recipe and get something that was palatable, appropriate for the market, that had kind of the flavor profile we were looking for, that did take a long time. We experimented with, I remember one my dad did with cardamom, and then I thought of the cinnamon piece, and we just kind of went back and forth until until we came on on the final recipe. I have no idea what goes into starting a uh, specialty liquor business. What do you do then? You... You have a bottle and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, this could be a thing that I could sell. Like, what do you do then? Who do you go to? No, that's a great question. We knew that we weren't distillers by trade and that we weren't necessarily interested in starting a full licensed spirits facility. But we did want to find a partner that we could work with who supported our vision. So we started reaching out to local distilleries to see if somebody could make it for us. Is this something where there's a romantic excursion involved where you go to the fields and you're, you're dancing among the flowers to figure it out? Or is it the sort of thing that's a little more bootstrapped? You, you ordered up the flowers, you grew them here. Uh, we, <laughs> the initial batches of the flowers I grew because I'm a gardener. We would love to paint a beautiful picture of me in a uh, village on the Amazon River making Tingala, but it isn't quite that way. It's a little more real. Have you guys had the chance to go to the Amazon yet? Uh, no, COVID sort of like put the kibosh on travel. We were talking about it about three, four years ago. Oh, yeah, we should go. We should go. And then COVID hit and everything shut down. So we haven't, haven't gotten there yet. Well, Dan Boyce, the Two's family dropped off a sample of these flowers. I have them here with me in the studio. They are known as buzz buttons, sometimes called Szechuan buttons. And they are a gorgeous yellow. They almost look like they're dotted with yellow pollen, little bulbs of yellow pollen. I'm going to give them a smell first. Hmm. Okay, maybe a little fresh and astringent. And should I just taste one? Let's see. Well, nothing's quite happening yet, but I only really just licked the (laughs) Lick the bud here. You know, Dan, given that it had been a while since either of us tasted Tingala, you and I met the twos at a bar that carries it, the Denver Press Club downtown. 
Bob, I don't imagine buzz buttons are growing in people's Colorado gardens. Where, where do you get them? Actually, they are growing in Colorado gardens. Oh. It is a flower that has been around for a number of years as an ornamental. Hmm. About 400 years ago, the Portuguese took it from the Amazon River Basin, took it to West Africa, East Africa. In Madagascar, the national dish is called Romazava, and they use the flower the same way we would use cabbage. And you get that same effect of the flower. Numbing cabbage. Mm. Wow. Okay. Mm. That's As stuff. if cabbage needed anything <laughs> to make the experience. Sometimes maybe cabbage could use more, okay. a, a little bit of a tingle, you know? <laughs> we could replace kale with tingala flowers. <laughs> and how, how does it come to you in Golden, Colorado? <laughs> it's grown for us by a grower in Southern California, and it is shipped to us via UPS. I understand it. it's also called the toothache plant. Because it's, it helps with toothaches in the way that anything that numbs would. As many indigenous cultures know, there are properties with any plant that maybe go just beyond as a nutritional or as a food supply. There are medicinal effects from the plant. The numbing does work as that. And the Portuguese also took it to Goa, India, where it's an Ayurvedic medicine that's used in that. It also was uh, looked at very carefully as an antimicrobial or an anti worm or, or intestinal problem. The bar here at the press club stocks Tingala, and uh, this is a place with a lot of skeptical people. So I'm going to start with my skepticism, which is, have you built a business on a novelty that people won't return to? We definitely don't want to think it's a novelty. We made it strong, so it's easy to mix in cocktails, so it's versatile, um, and we're certainly listening to the feedback that we receive. Partially, that divisiveness with the original Tingala might have led you toward this new variety that you have just released. Tell us a little bit about how this Tingala Gold variety is different. Sure, you bet. So we originally targeted, you know, high-end, classy bartenders. We wanted mixed. We wanted mixologists. That's how we first wanted to approach the market. But in listening, even our bartenders were telling us it's strong, hmm. it's fun, you know, people like it, but it is challenging, even for bartenders. So listening to that feedback, we sort of looked at a different approach to the market where we could have something a little sweeter, a little shootable. Shootable! Um, <laughs> okay, so you could do shots of this. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, and that's more fun for bartenders, too. They're looking for a way to, you know, impress their customers, you know, bring people in, show them something new. That's kind of our gateway Tingala for a lot of people. And then as people get more into it, they might get more interested in, you know, the stronger version, interested in cocktails. I'd love to try this, well, the more accessible version. I guess I'm not that classy, Dan, like those bartenders <laughs> that we're going for. And then maybe something in a cocktail. I think are, you and I are both whiskey drinkers, aren't we? That is true. So I just want to make it clear, yeah. Ryan, you are trying to get away from trying the original Tingala again. I don't need to try the original again. <laughs> if I'm gonna get if I'm gonna get numb, it's gonna be on something new. Let's get numb. Dan, what do you say we do straight gold before the cocktail just to give it a try? I think it's the only way to fly, man. Ooh, it's very cinnamon forward. It is smoother. Then I remember the original being. What do you? The numbing's coming though. <laughs> the numbing is coming. <laughs> what did that take? Six, seven, seven eight seconds? Yeah, uh, yeah. I do think. I think you're right that there's 
Oh, yeah, it just ramps up, though, doesn't it? <laughs> we like to think it's a little more approachable. Is it it's been certainly sweeter. It is sweeter, It's certainly yes. sweeter. Sorry, I'm trying to remember how to continue speaking with my mouth in this <laughs> new condition. Uh, it's funny, it's reading as heat to me now. You, yeah. Interesting. I've yeah. never heard that before. I wonder if it's the combination of cinnamon, which maybe I associate with like Mexican hot chocolate. And it's also a hot day. It's also a hot day out. Well, I'm fascinated to try this in a cocktail, and it just so happens that Susan thought to propose a boulevardier, which has Campari and whiskey. It's a Negroni with whiskey. Susan, why don't you tell us about part of what you hope to achieve with Tengala is actually to help people taste other flavors more clearly. Isn't that right? That's right. Tingala is fun to drink. People enjoy the tingling sensation. But the aspect that we're uh, trying to convey to people is that it actually enhances other flavors. So when you use it in a cocktail, it brings out the flavors of the other ingredients and you enjoy the cocktail even more. I'll see what it does to the Boulevardier. All right, let's try it then. You know what, the Campari, which is of an herbal, rooty flavor, is actually enhanced. I think it pops more than I'm used to. And it's interesting then, the numbing does not numb my taste buds, my ability to receive flavor. You might almost think of it as, to some degree, like an extreme palate cleanser. Those other flavors, like Ryan, like you said, it kind of really cuts through and hits you in a different way. It stimulates your taste buds. And so the business is growing. Yes. Where do you see it headed? I don't know. We, we've talked about that. I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm retired, so we hope to grow the business as much as we can. We started in Colorado. Initially, we were distributing in the front range only. In the last year, we've expanded statewide. And now we've moved into Wisconsin, New York, and California, and also Nevada and Utah. So, you know, we're, we're growing uh, by leaps and bounds in our own small little way, and we hope to go national at some point. It's not easy to sell liquor from state to state, because every state's a little different, right, Eric? It absolutely is. Um, that's why a lot of people work with distributors who are experts at getting licensed in different states, at getting your product to these states, and all the reporting requirements that a brand has to do. How is it having a family business? Do you get at each other's throats sometimes? Try to think about what it would be like to work with my mother. <laughs> Love working with my parents, uh, but yeah, there's certainly points in any family business where you know, you're going to have that you know, parent-child dynamic still, uh -huh. and, and not a bad thing. You know, I'm learning a lot from my parents, and I hope that they're learning a little from me as well in, in my perspective. Oh, Dad, what is something you've learned from your son in this? Well, he was actually very uh, instrumental in us getting started. We had the concept, we had the idea, we made some prototypes, and he refined the formula that I came up with and then took it to uh, a contract distillery because you have to be licensed as a distillery to produce a product. Ten years ago, Bob, did you, would you ever imagine that you'd be running a, a family spirit business? <laughs> Never in a thousand years. I came out of the news business, so uh, I joke we, we went from news to booze. Oh, th those are often interconnected, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are at a bar in a press club. <laughs> Do you remember your first numbing experience? Oh. Sounds like such, <laughs> such a personal question. Oh. 
Do we do we go there? Uh, <laughs> um, well, the actually the uh, the initial run of the flowers, we made jello shots to take to a party, and everybody was like, "This is fabulous! You got to do this!" And we were like, "Well, I guess we do," you know. And that's where Eric took the formula to the distillery, and we got approval. Tingala started as jello shots. Tingala started as a jello <laughs> shot, indeed. You know, most things that start with jello shots don't end this well, Dan. <laughs> it's, it's a rare win. It's a rare win. Lovely to meet you. Thanks for letting us taste. Oh, it was our pleasure. Of course. Thank you for having us. Thank you. A taste of the tingling liqueur Tingala made in Colorado. Susan, Bob, and Eric Tews own the brand. There are photos at CPR.org as Dan Boyce and I bellied up to the bar at the Denver Press Club this past summer. Before we go, a final invitation to take part in tomorrow night's Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza. It's an eight-year tradition based on something much older, a campy Judy Garland Christmas special featuring her one-time collaborator, Mel Torme. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yuletide carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows. Turkey and some mistletoe Help to make the season bright Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow Will find it hard to sleep tonight Borrowing from this 1963 special, we put on our biggest show of the year with music and comedy and memories. So be in our audience. See Radio in the Making tomorrow night at Denver's Central Presbyterian Church. Limited tickets at CPR.org. And that is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to our crew. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News and KRCC.